Psalm 83. O God, do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you, they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hegrites, Gevar and Ammon and Emmerich, Pereshiv and the inhabitants of Sor, Ashur also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, said he. Do to them as you did to Midian, as the Sirah, and Yavin at the river of Kishon, who were destroyed at Anyan, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Orav and Seva, all their princes like Sevak and Samaran, who said, let us take possession for ourselves, the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chafe before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountain ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. The word of the Lord. I often feel like uh, this experience uh, where there are two things in my life that are intentioned that feel like total opposites to each other. And yet, at least for Christians, we're supposed to hold both of these things together. What are they? Well, on the one hand, there are all these places in the Bible that say things like this, fret not yourself over the man who carries out evil, refrain from anger and forsake wrath, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Of course, Jesus said this much more succinctly in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, you could call this things like trust or patience, but I want to call this acceptance. Um, acceptance, if you were with us uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, the five stages of grief. And in grief, you go through all of this turmoil until finally you arrive at a place of acceptance. You're not in denial. You're not trying to change things anymore. You're in acceptance. Now, that's a healthy place to be. But on the other hand, there are all these other places in the Bible, like this psalm that we just read, where you're looking at enemies and evil and injustice in the world, and you're saying, this is not acceptable. Let's just name that for what it is, anger. Acceptance and anger. How do you hold those two things together? 
because they feel like total opposites. And yet, the Bible talks about these two things in a way that makes it sound like we're supposed to hold both of these things together in one coherent life. How do you even do that? Should we even do that? Because you can imagine acceptance and anger having a conversation with each other where acceptance would say to anger, hey, anger, you got to check yourself. You've degenerated into rage. You're going you're gonna to tear everything apart. You're going to destroy everything, including yourself. And of course, anger would shoot right back at acceptance and say, what world are you living in? Don't you see the injustice and the abuse and the oppression of this world? At least I'm trying to do something about it. But acceptance, you've degenerated into apathy. And if you had your way, evil would take over the world. Do you feel the tension here? Anger and acceptance. The Bible says we should hold these things two together. But how do you actually do that without acceptance degenerating into apathy? So you just got to embrace the anger? Or uh, anger degenerating into rage, so you just got to embrace the acceptance? That even if you're not a Christian or not sure what you believe about God, this is a challenge for all of us. This psalm shows us a way forward um, that enables us to hold both of these things together in such a way that we can hold together the acceptance and the anger, and yet without degenerating into either apathy or rage. And the, and the way forward is in this psalm. And it shows us that the way forward is by doing three things. It's by listening to our anger, understanding our anger, and transforming our anger. So let's look at each one of those things in order. First, it means listening to our anger. Now, um, we're going to do this first point in two levels. And the first level is this. At the beginning of this psalm, it's talking about a time in Israel's history, and we don't exactly know when, but they were surrounded by their enemies who wanted to destroy them. So at the very beginning, they're crying out to God, and they say, oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, oh God. They're complaining because it looks like God is doing acceptance. And they're saying, God, this is no time for acceptance. This is a time for anger. We want to think about this. The very first level that we see here is that anger is a visceral response to the reality that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. That there is evil, injustice, abuse, oppression in this world, and it demands to be set right. Anger is a way of saying this is not acceptable. So, for instance, many of you may have heard the recent podcast about Mars Hill Church in Seattle. It's all about uh, this church, Mars Hill Church. It it, um, dissolved in 2014 after the resignation of its pastor. And the podcast is all about the narcissism and the misogyny and the abuse that was rampant in the church. But the thing that has amazed me about this podcast is the response that it has generated. Because it's not just one church. There's a whole movement of people that have experienced the very same horrible things in churches all over the country, and so they're angry, and rightly so. There are people deconstructing their faith, hashtag exvangelical. They're angry, and they have a right to be angry. Friends, the point is this. Anger is a sign that something is wrong. Anger is a sign. It's screaming at us that something is wrong. Eugene Peterson was a great 
preacher and writer and uh, Bible translator, he wrote a wonderful little book on the Psalms, and he said it like this, just as hurt is the usual human experience that brings us to our knees praying for help, so hate is frequently the human experience that brings us to our feet praying for justice. Hate is often the first sign that we care, since anger is a sign that something is wrong. Now, that's level number one, but we need to go a little deeper to level number two. What is evil and injustice? Well, if we go back to this psalm, what does it say in verse two? They're talking to God, and they say, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you, O God, have raised their heads. This is saying that um, that ultimately, all sin, all evil, is ultimately, it's fighting against God. It's making yourself God's enemy. That's what it's saying here. Now, here's why this is so important for us. Um, first of all, this means that, um, that only the Bible gives us the resources for actually talking about good and evil as real things. As real things. You know, our modern Western society has a narrative, a very powerful narrative, that says, look, all morality is relative. Who's to say what's right and wrong? And yet, we don't actually live like that, do we? We might say that we believe all morality is relative, and yet we'll get out in the streets and march, or maybe even more often get online and tweet about something that we genuinely believe is evil. We don't say, well, who's to say what's right and wrong about that? No, we say, that's evil. You know, in the ancient Roman world, they had their own moral ideals, things like strength and honor and um, um, crushing your enemy. But in our world, our moral ideals are very different, things like individual dignity, human rights, caring for the poor and the weak and the oppressed. Those are our moral ideals, and they're very different from the ancient world. But where did we get those moral ideals? We got them from the Bible. And don't take my word for it. If you've been coming here for a while, you know that one of our frequent guest panelists is that uh, German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche was an atheist. He hated Christianity, and yet Nietzsche was ruthlessly honest about what Christianity is about. And so he was constantly criticizing all his fellow secular philosopher friends because they had abandoned the Christian faith, and yet they still wanted to champion things like human rights. And so Nietzsche was constantly calling them out on this. He was saying, you're being intellectually dishonest. So for instance, in one of his books, he's talking about all his secular philosopher friends, and he says, they got rid of the Christian God and now think they have to hold on to Christian morality more than ever. But when we renounce the Christian faith, we abandon all right to Christian morality. And just to be clear, when Nietzsche talks about Christian morality, he's specifically talking about things like human rights and caring for the poor. Anger is a sign that something is wrong. And yet, here's Nietzsche himself telling us that only the Bible gives us resources for actually calling it wrong. First thing we see here is that if evil is ultimately fighting against God, that means that only the Bible actually gives us the resources for thinking about this as a real thing. But secondly, if evil is fighting against God, that actually helps us redefine our enemies. In other words, I, I would hope that this would be an encouragement, at least some small comfort to you, that if at the end of the day, evil and sin is, is fighting against God, that means that it's not really about you. When people are attacking you, I know it feels like that, and we're still the ones 
who experience that. But at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about how their hearts are in rebellion against God so that when people attack you, you are not alone in this. God is with you. But that leads to a danger and our second point. Um, the way forward with anger means listening to our anger, but secondly, it means understanding our anger. We just saw that um, sin and evil is fighting against God. It's making yourself God's enemy. But there's a danger in here, and we see it back at the beginning. Um, they're talking to God, and it says, behold, God, your enemies, but then it goes right on to say this, they lay crafty plans against your people, they consult together against your treasured ones. This is saying, hey, we're God's people. We're God's treasured ones, and anyone fighting against us is fighting against God. This is potentially scary stuff because you realize it's just a short step from there to saying, hey, well, if anyone fighting against us is fighting against God, then by definition, God must be on my side. This is a problem. But fortunately, there's a lot more to see here because here's the question. What does it mean to fight against God? What does that actually look like? Well, what are these enemies of God saying in this psalm? If you go back to verse 12, these are people who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastors of God. These enemies of God are basically saying, we want to take God's place. They're looking at God's stuff, God's land, God's creation, God's world, and they're saying, we want to take possession. We want to take ownership of that. At the end of the day, um, sin and evil ultimately is, is taking God's place. It's substituting yourself for God. It's, it's taking God's place. Now, here's the thing. It's not just the enemies of God's people who do this. God's people themselves do this. In fact, all of us do this. And this psalm shows us where. If you remember, this psalm is all about enemies who want to destroy God's people. And so the psalmist in this psalm is saying, hey, God, I want you to do to our enemies now the same thing that you did to our enemies in the past. And then he talks about what God did to those enemies in the past. It says, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Now, when it talks about Sisera and Midian and Jabin and, and, and these people, this is referring back to the book of Judges. Um, and the book of Judges is all about what happened when God's people got into the promised land. Friends, this is important. We don't want to miss this. This is telling us something incredibly important. Maybe we need to do a little Bible history 101, but the book of Exodus is all about how God rescued slavery out of Egypt, right? But then the book of Judges is all about what happened once they got into the promised land. Do you remember what happened? The very last verse of the book of Judges is like a summary statement for the whole book. It's, it's, it telling, it's telling us what the whole book is about in one sentence. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Mic drop. Everyone did what was right, not in God's eyes, in their own eyes. This is eerie. Because fast forward 3,000 years, and you realize, I can't think of a more concise description than this of what it means to be a modern self in our modern world because we say everyone should be free to live however they want 
in their own eyes. Right? We want to take God's place. The book of Judges is the story of how God's people over and over and over and over and over and over and over again kept taking God's place. And whenever they did that, enemies attacked them like Midian, Sisera, and Jabin. But the book of Judges is also the story of how every time they kept taking God's place, God kept pursuing them, healing them, renewing them, rescuing them, redeeming them. Friends, do you, are you beginning to realize what's going on here? This is the gospel. Traditional religion is all about, hey, if you're good and holy and virtuous and righteous, then God will love you and protect you. But the gospel is the opposite of that. The gospel is the story of a God who loves and protects you even when you're trying to take his place. It's all about a God who pursues you even when you're running from him and rebelling against him. Do you realize what this does for us? Listen, is there a danger in thinking that God must be on my side? You bet there is. That's why right in the middle of this psalm, there's a powerful reminder the gospel, a powerful antidote against ever thinking that way. Listen, here's the point. Yes, anger is, is, is a sign that something is wrong in this world, that there's evil and injustice in this world, but anger is also often a sign that I want to be in control of the world and something is standing in my way. That means that we can't only listen to our anger, we also need to understand our anger. So ask yourselves, hey, am I angry because there's evil and injustice in this world? Or am I angry because I want to take God's place? I want to be in control of my life in this world and something or someone else is standing in my way. You know, most of the time it's probably both of those things at the same time. That's why the Psalms are so helpful for us. Because the Psalms are a way of bringing our anger to God in prayer and going deeper with God. They're a way of gaining a deeper understanding of what's really going on in our hearts with God. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a book by Robert Mulholland called Invitation to a Journey. It's all about Christian spiritual formation. Um, Robert Mulholland wrote a follow-up to that book called The Deeper Journey. When you've been following Jesus for a while, what does it look like to go deeper in your relationship with God? That's what the deeper journey is about. And in the book, Robert Mulholland says that there are basically two ways of being human in this world. One way is to cultivate a true self, which is radically trusting in God. The other way is to cultivate what he calls a false self. Now, listen to uh, how he talks about the false self in this book. He says, The temptation to take over God's role in our life is the essence of the false self. Did you catch that? The temptation to take over God's role in our life is the essence of the false self. He's saying basically the same thing that this psalm is saying, that that all sin and evil basically is an attempt to take God's place in this world. And whenever our desire to do that is thwarted, we get angry. But listen, here's the deeper journey. Where does that anger come from? At the end of the day, that kind of anger comes from fear. I'm not going to be in control. Things aren't going to go the way I 
want them to do. So even if we're genuinely angry about real evil and injustice in this world, if our anger degenerates into rage that wants to dehumanize and destroy our enemies, then that anger is coming from a place of fear. We wanted to take God's place, and it's not going our way. Listen, is it possible that acceptance can degenerate into apathy? into a a place where we just want to give up on the world in our lives? Yeah. And is it possible that that redemptive, righteous anger can actually degenerate into rage, a desire to dehumanize and destroy our enemies that are around us? Of course there is. But what holds both of these things together and drives them forward? Fear. Fear is what makes us want to give up on the world, give up on our lives in apathy. And, and fear is what makes us want to hunt down our enemies in a rage and crush them in the dirt. Fear will never address the problems of our world, and fear will never help us become the true selves that God created us to be. Is there any hope? There is, but it means moving to our last point. We've seen that moving forward with our anger is listening to our anger. It means understanding our anger. But lastly, it means transforming our anger. We, um, we just saw that, that sin and evil means taking God's place and fighting against God. But one of the amazing things about the Psalms is that it shows us that, um, that judgment, the Psalms are always leaving the prerogative for judgment in God's hands where it belongs, including this psalm. But the amazing thing about this psalm is that it takes it a step further. What's the goal or purpose of judgment? Fear would say the goal and purpose of judgment is to punish and destroy, and that's the impulse we see everywhere in our own culture. We're constantly calling down curses on everybody else. Our impulse is to punish and destroy. But what's the goal in this psalm? Well, what does it say? It says, fill, it's talking about God's enemies. It says, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. The goal here is not destruction for destruction's sake. The goal is that they would seek God and know God. That is a radically different goal than punish and destroy. Now, what in the world could possibly animate a goal like this? You know the answer. This psalm is like a teaser trailer for something that Jesus made explicit when he came to earth. Jesus said, love your enemies. No one in the history of the world ever said anything like this. Only Jesus. But Jesus didn't only say it. Jesus did it. What can get us to a place like this? What can get us to a place where we genuinely want to see um, healing and justice and renewal in this world, and yet to want that in such a way that, that we don't seek the destruction of our enemies, but their redemption? The only way that happens is when we see that all of that has already been done for us by Jesus on the cross. You know, this psalm has shown us the danger of thinking that God must be on my side. But this psalm also issues an invitation to every single one of us to say, look, God, I've tried to take your place. I've made myself your enemy, O God. 
But then right in the middle of this psalm, God comes to people who have made themselves his enemies, and he's telling them, I am so closely identified with you that whatever people are doing to you, they're doing to me. Whenever people attack you, they're attacking me because I'm the God who takes the hit for you. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Do you realize what this means? Sin is taking God's place. We want to be God. We want to take God's place. That means that we deserve the justice that we so quickly call down on other people. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ, the true king of the universe, took our place on the cross. Jesus Christ was so closely identified with us that he took the hit for us. Jesus took all of the judgment that we deserve. It all came down on him so that all the love that Jesus deserves could come down on us so that God could heal you and renew you and redeem you and pour out his love in your life. What could bring us up out of fear? Only an experience of love. Listen, you know, is it possible that acceptance can degenerate into into apathy, into a feeling of, I just want to give up on the world? Yeah. And is it possible that, that anger degenerates into rage and a feeling like, I just want to crush my enemies? And, and the thing that holds those things together is fear. But what would it look like to get lifted up out of these things into a genuine experience back to acceptance and anger? What could possibly hold both of these things together? Love. Love is the only thing that can lift you up out of your apathy back into a genuine experience of of acceptance that God is king over the world, that I can trust him and rest him and I don't need to take his place and be in control over the world. And love is also the only thing that can lift us up out of rage and into a genuine redemptive anger that, that longs for the renewal of a world that's falling apart, including all the people that are tearing it apart. Only when you see that you made yourself an enemy of God, that we tried to take God's place, but on the cross, God redeemed us by taking our place, only then will that fill our hearts with a love that can accept God's kingship and long for the renewal of the world without destroying our enemies. Esau Macaulay is a wonderful theologian, Anglican priest, He wrote a great book last year called Reading While Black. It's all about um, African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. I don't know if you can see that. But it's about interpreting the Bible from within an African-American context. But it's a wonderful book for all of us. And he says something really amazing in this book. He says, what brings the warring parties of the world together is not the emergence of a new philosophy of government It is not free market capitalism, communism, socialism, or democracy. It is a person. The Bible calls on us to develop a theological imagination within which we can see the world as a community and not a collection of hostilities. It does so by giving us the vision of a person, Jesus, who can heal our wounds and dismantle our hostility. He's talking about Jesus, the true king of the universe, who owns this world, not us, and who one day will return to this world to set all things right and make all things new. But here's the question. It's the heartbreaking question. What do we do with our anger until then? 
There are no easy, simple answers to that question, but we do talk about it quite a bit here at Central West End Church, so keep coming back. But I want to leave you with at least a vision, one vision, of one possible way of what this could look like in our lives and in this world. Alan Jacobs is a professor of humanities at Baylor University, and I was listening to an interview with him last year, and the question came up, hey, Alan Jacobs, in a world that's full of hostility, lots of people have come up with different options for how Christians should respond to a hostile world. One option is to retreat and withdraw from the world. There are other options that people have proposed. Alan Jacobs, what option would you propose for bringing healing and integration to a world that's full of hostility? And Alan Jacobs says, I'm going to go with the Gandalf option. Now, what does that mean? He's talking about the book, Lord of the Rings. And in that book, towards the end of the book, there's a city, the city of Gondor, and it's under attack by enemies who want to destroy the city. Now, the city of Gondor, for years, they've been waiting for the true king to come back and make all things new and restore the kingdom, but, but he hasn't come back yet. And in the meantime, there's another guy who's in his place. His name is Denethor, but Denethor is not a king. Denethor is a steward. A steward is someone who cares for something that belongs to someone else right? A steward cares for something that belongs to someone else. Denethor is not a king. He's a steward. But at this point in the book, he's terrified, and fear has driven him to apathy. He just wants to give up and and lay down and surrender. And that here comes Gandalf the wizard, and Gandalf is trying to help him. But because his mind is so warped by fear, Denethor gets angry at Gandalf. He thinks that Gandalf has come, and all he wants to do is usurp the kingship and and take rule over the city of Gondor. So here's what Gandalf says to Denethor, and this is what Alan Jacobs is talking about. Gandalf says, the rule of no realm is mine, but all worthy things that are in peril in the world as it now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, even though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward. Did you not know? Alan Jacobs says, if if I were going to define my calling in just a few sentences, those would be the sentences. That means that instead of of pouring all our energy into crushing and destroying our enemies, that instead we look into this world for what are the fair and beautiful things in the world, even things that might stand just the smallest chance of surviving the chaos and the hostility of this world, and that we pour ourselves into caring and nurturing and stewarding those things as God's steward in this world. Friends, only love can help us to do that. Only love can make us stewards like that. Because at the end of the day, hate and fear won't do it. Only love can do it. And so as God's people in this world, God calls us to be his stewards in this world. That we move out into the world as his stewards, not to crush and destroy our enemies, but to look for the beautiful and fair things in this world. That doesn't mean that we don't name evil or tell the truth about injustice. Of course we do. Gandalf did that. Jesus did that. We must do that.
But while we're doing that, in the midst of that, what is the goal? Not punish and destroy, redemption and renewal. That we look for the beautiful and fair things of the world and we pour ourselves into the nurturing and the care and the flourishing of this world. The only thing that can help us embrace both the acceptance that can rest in God's kingship and God's control over the world and the genuine, righteous, redemptive anger that longs for the renewal of all things, including people who are destroying the world, the only thing that can hold both of these things together and empower us is the sacrificial love of Jesus. He took our place on the cross so that we could serve his purposes in the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning that you are a God who comes to people who have made ourselves your enemy and you say to us, I am so closely identified with you that I would take your place even though you tried to take my place. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to take the role, to take up the stewardship that you call us to in this world, that you would replace the fear in our hearts with the love, the sacrificial love of Jesus and that you would enable us to move out into this world as your stewards, as your servants, working for the renewal of this world while we patiently wait for you to come and make all things new. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to receive our offering at this time. Uh, due to health concerns, we don't pass the basket here. There is a basket that is out in the foyer on your way out. But um, the easiest thing to do is just head over to the Give page on our website um, where you can participate with us in the vision and mission of our church. Our vision as a church is to see a city made new, spiritually, socially, and culturally made new by the gospel. We, we're trying to follow the Gandalf option here, which is really the Jesus option. Um, and so if you're a regular member or attender, then this is an opportunity to participate with us in that vision. But if you are new or visiting this morning, whether in person or online, we want to invite you to remain our guest and visitor and not feel any obligation to give financially. Rather, let us know if there's any way we can serve you. We have a COVID-19 page on our website. There's information there about how you can get in touch with us. If you're in hardship at this time, please let us know how we can serve you. But for all of us, this is an opportunity to ponder and meditate and respond to what God is saying to you this morning. Let me pray for us, and then our musicians are going to play for us. Father, we thank you for these gifts and offerings and ask that you would use them, that many others may come to see. Seek your name, Lord, as the psalm says, to know that you are God, to, to rest in your kingship over the world, and to take up your purposes in this world. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.